In Jesus' name, amen. There's three Bible readings today. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> First one's from Job, second one from Psalms, and the third one from James. Job 31, 13 to 15. If I rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did he not who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to, whom, to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. James 3, 7-9. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of poison, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. All right, uh, let's pray as we uh, get started, and I might uh, touch on a couple of those readings as well. Thank you. Uh, dear Lord, we pray that you'd uh, come and be with us in, uh, this morning in, um, in my speech, in one another's hearing, and would you teach each of us something that we need to know today, and uh, just um, be, a, be a guard on my tongue, Lord, that only good things come out as well. Uh, open our minds to creation and what we'd like us to know about it and lead us into all truth. Lord, we're all on the journey there somewhere to finding the truth. Even though we have our Bibles with us, we don't know everything and we're still spending our lives learning. Uh, we don't have to be ashamed of it, but we pray that you'd lead us a step forward in that this morning. All right. Beauty. Presentation's working. Um, does anyone, I don't know if we've got any fans of the high country here or anyone who recognises what mountain that is? Yeah, close. It's Mount Bogong, I'm pretty sure. Um, in fact, there was a landslide about where we took this photo uh, in recent times and uh, they were cut off up the top there for about six months or something like that. Yeah. So uh, my theme is creation. And like you, I have yet to discover really where this series is going to go, um, but I'm going to bring some thoughts about creation this morning. Something that we can notice from Stuart's reading this morning is that what we believe about God, what we believe about the world, what we believe is true really affects the way that we live, or it has the power to affect the way that we live. 
I remember he hearing in some of the circles that I moved in probably 10 years ago, someone say, oh, I'm so over theology, I think I'm just going to you know, drop theology, leave theology behind. Well, the bad news for that guy is you really can't. <laughs> we all carry around a theology in our heads and it really has an impact on what we do potentially and not just uh, an abstract set of thoughts in our heads. And so that first little text from the book of Job, which is probably a fairly rare Bible reading, was in Job's final kind of uh, disquisition to the, the courtroom that the scene almost imagines where he's kind of saying, no, uh, here's my last statement before the court makes its deliberations. Here's why I don't deserve all that I've suffered, all the bad things that have happened to me. And amongst those statements of his own integrity that he makes is, even with my slaves, I treated them well because I did not forget that the same God who made me made them. And so it was a creation theology that lay behind his endeavour to treat even the slaves in a very stratified society to treat even the slaves with dignity because he recognised that they too were created. So what we believe really has the power to impact how we behave. It really should, and in some ways it inevitably will. So a little bit of uh, biblical content, because mostly I'm going to be talking theologically, so I just want to bring out a couple of things from Genesis. Uh, creation's a bit more uh, intricate in the early chapters of Genesis than we might imagine, and so we just might think in these three terms. So my first verse there is Genesis 1.14, if it's come out a bit small. Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, and days and years, Genesis 1.14. So we have a very cosmic view of creation in Genesis 1. But when we get to Genesis 2, you feel like you're down on the ground. It's not such a big you know, satellite view. You're right there on the ground and it's about where you're going to get food to live. How are you going to survive? How are you going to subsist on the land? So sample verse. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Trees that were... Beautiful, and that produced delicious fruit. And then creation actually hasn't stopped by the end of Genesis 2, even though we move into the drama of the fall and everything. Uh, this might be an unusual version for you, but in Genesis 4, the first verse, this is what the Net Bible says. Eve became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, and then she said, I've created a man just as the Lord did. Now, you might not be used to the Net Bible and might not have seen that translation, but there's some justification for that translation because the same word is used in Eve's speech as later on will be used in Genesis chapter 4 where Abraham calls the Lord creator of heaven and earth. It's the same word. And so Eve gives birth and she goes, wow, that, you know, look, I've made something amazing too. You know, God's made all this amazing stuff and now look at what I've done. Uh, she might be, maybe changes her way of putting that a little bit by the second last verse of the same chapter. But what it signifies is that God has allowed people to participate in creation. Not that they have any power to do real creative work, but I think of it like a parent steering the car, but just letting the child put a hand on the wheel, right? To kind of get involved in the process without really driving it uh, directly. So Eve gets to participate, and we read at the chapter, beginning of chapter 5 of Genesis as well, um, Adam fathers a child in his own image and after his own likeness, the same language that we see 
in chapter 1. So humans get to participate, they get to join in, and God lets them uh, dabble a little bit in creation, even though the real power and the real design is his. So a lot of interesting things about creation in the early chapters there. The way I'm thinking from here on is to talk about seven things that we should treasure in creation because God treasures them, because he uh, involved creation with them, that he uh, developed them through creation. So I'm working from the large scale down to the small scale, and so I'm thinking to start with on the really cosmic scale. I don't know if you've had kind of an aha moment in your life recently, a moment of insight where you felt like you could see things all the more clearly. I was working at a little Bible college 27, 28 years ago, north of Sydney. It was my first time to teach, actually, really, um, in that setting. And me and a couple of mates from the Bible college who were kind of on staff, we heard about a little um, astronomical observatory out in the bush north of Sydney. It's a funny little thing. I'd never seen it advertised. I don't even know how we found out about it. It was a tiny little place. But we drove there, middle of absolutely nowhere, and the night's activity was viewing Saturn through one of their fairly substantial telescopes. It, it was not parks or anything, so Saturn just looked like you know, a little ball with a hat pin stuck through it. But the, the aha moment didn't come from looking through the telescope for me. It actually came from looking at a photographic slide that they had in their little museum. And it was just a black and white slide stemming from some observatory somewhere. And I had a close look at it. And I realised that every single little mark in this slide was not a star, barring one or two, but it was a galaxy. And it kind of dawned on me at that moment, and maybe you've had this, or maybe it was years back for you and you're like, this is the bleeding obvious, Andrew. Um, But I just remember staring that and realising, ah, with the naked eye, this spot of sky would be basically jet black. (laughs) Maybe one star in it. But if you can zoom in far enough, this is what you see. And I could probably count 500 galaxies in this one photographic frame. That's when it really dawned on me the true scale of the cosmos and how much is out there that's escaping us. So I'm begging to differ. This, you might have heard of Carl Sagan. He was, a sort of a, he was like the Richard Dawkins a generation back, right, and an astronomer. He was a sceptic. And so he was kind of deflating the human sense of importance. I'll read this out for you as well. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light, which was a distant photo of Earth. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Now, I know that there's an awful lot of space between the galaxies and the stars, but that still strikes me as a really negative way to look at our world. Um, The same scene that lay behind the text there, this is an image from the Hubble um, Deep Field um, exploration that it did. And so this is not the James Webb Space Telescope, which can see everything all the better. This is just the Hubble, but... Uh, in the deep field, it sort of drove into another one of those um, little square millimetres of our night sky where we really can't see anything with the naked eye and just uh, brought out all of these galaxies. 
So I can imagine God saying to Carl Sagan, you know, like, I don't know how many lights you want me to put up, you know, to get you away from this feeling that it's too dark. You know, there's billions upon billions. Uh, and each of these marks, each of these lights, probably consists of 100 million, not 100 million, 100,000 million stars. That was... Um, Fred Hoyle, the British astronomer, his guideline was uh, our galaxy, each galaxy has roughly 100,000 million stars and there's a roughly 100,000 million galaxies. So each speck is not a, not a star, it's a galaxy of stars. So not empty, but teeming. And so if you imagine someone from another galaxy, probably that's too far, only in Star Wars can you really do that, um, from another star... Zooming around the Milky Way galaxy and looking for life. All they know is the life on their own planet and they're just wondering, is there any life anywhere else? They've discovered warp drive propulsion the way that we haven't and never will. And so they've got the capacity to move from star system to star system. And they would see a lot of objects like this. Uh, I had plenty of objects in our solar system to pick from. And uh, I'll seriously will bring you a Mars bar if you can name this one. Uh, you're not allowed to answer, Gil. <laughs> Does anyone know what object that is? It's in our solar system. Okay, so it's Ganymede. It's one of the moons of Jupiter. And it's just this battle-scarred old hunk of rock. It looks a lot like our moon. In fact, it's, uh, if you put the two next to each other, you might have trouble picking which one was our moon. And so if you were driving your spaceship through the galaxy and you had the power to go from star system to star system without getting old and dying in between... You'd see lots and lots of this kind of stuff. Battle-scarred, lifeless planets, scorched planets near their suns, deep frozen balls of nitrogen. And you would see hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of these things. And then if you reached our solar system and reached our world, you would see this. And you would see something utterly unlike anything you had seen to that point. And I think once you saw that, you would know, oh, our journey's over. Now we finally have seen a place designed for life. We've finally seen a place that's meant to protect life and is not trying to kill it. So there's a preacher from about 100 years ago, and I was curious actually to see if anyone knew about F.W. Borum. Anyone heard of F.W. Borum? Yeah. I knew, Tom, that you would know. <laughs> uh, so there's this uh, old Aussie preacher, and he paints this picture. I won't do the whole reading particularly because I actually don't have it here now that I don't have my laptop. Um, he's got this long explanation of the uniqueness of planet Earth and he compares, compares it to uh, the beauty of all the women in the world. So this was not my idea. It was F.W. Borum. I disclaim responsibility. But he said it's like uh, the men of the world being able to appreciate that there's a lot of beautiful women in the world, but deciding and fastening on one and devoting themselves to the love of that particular woman. And he feels that our planet enjoys that kind of love from God, that God knows and author authors all the worlds in the universe, but has fastened his love on this particular planet, has chosen it for the playing out of the whole drama of salvation, just on this one planet. And unlike all the other planets, this is the one that encourages life. All the others are going to try and kill it. And so Borum says in this passage, you know, there are other people putting their hands up, you know, would like to go to Jupiter or Saturn or Mars. Or if you like, 
Count me out. I'm the last person to go. I'm trying to stay right here. I, I will not volunteer for these programs. Uh, and so uh, he realised how unique Earth was, that it's designed for life. It encourages it. Just in this thin film, this tiny little... Uh, it's, like, it's like the bacteria on an old tennis ball, right? You know, there's just this film of life and you go outside of that level and you can't live anymore. The one place in the solar system, maybe the one place in the galaxy that you can easily live. So something else that we learn to treasure from the early chapters of Genesis is time. And so practically the first thing created is the day. And so Genesis 1 has this unique way of establishing order in the world, portraying God's establishment of order. And he establishes um, spaces in which people can live, right? So the second day of creation, separation of sky and land, right? Creating kind of a barrier between the, the cosmos as they understood it with waters above and waters below. There's room now for life to exist. But also the day is room for life to exist. We need time, we need space in time and we need space in space. And both of those things are established. And so the whole of Genesis 1 is about the creation of order, about things being structured to create life, to make room for life, to, to preserve it. And so it's such an important theme of Genesis 1 that this is not that. Sky is not land. Water is not land. Um, Things are differentiated so that we get the chance to live. And so a Jewish scholar said there's just nothing else in ancient literature where there's anything like the scheme of seven days of creation like we find in the Bible. It's really quite unique, even though there are examples of seven days building up to a climax in some of that other literature. So God called the light day and the darkness night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. And at the other end of the flood, where conditions for life are re-established, while the earth continues to exist, planting time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. As if to say, this world is going to be stable enough in time and space that you get to live. Disasters like the flood are not going to uh, wipe you out. That seems to be God's promise for the preservation of life. And then there's the sheer abundance of life. Something else I pick up from Genesis 1 is that it's just meant to teem. There's these words for teeming and swarming. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number. Let the, uh, the land teem with all those things that crawl. And it's funny that even though in day six, the creatures that crawl on the land, it mentions them, you know, for an Old Testament priest, for an Israelite priest, those things were all ceremonially unclean, right? You couldn't eat them. You'd really try and avoid touching them if you were a priest. So they were not clean. They couldn't be used for sacrifice, but they were a legitimate part of creation. And the, the world was meant to swarm with them. We, we didn't just want representative life, just a couple of each kinds of life on the planet. It's actually just meant to be abundant, like uh, Gen 2 penguins in this case. So the Lord loves it when life thrives and fills the domain that it's meant for. Now, in ancient philosophy, and this was part of early Christian philosophy, humans were at a unique point between heaven and earth, you could say. So your little dose of um, Platonism for the morning, Platonic philosophy, is that 
All the possible levels of reality were all occupied. This is not something we have to sign off on, by the way, so I'm not suggesting it goes in our statement of faith. It's an idea. <laughs> but that uh, reality had all these layers that you could exist in and that everything from the kind of the grottiest, lowliest thing, uh, there was a whole range from there, all the way up to God's perfection and everything in between. But the heavenly things, like God and angels, and then the earthly things, the uh, terrestrial sort of things, the things that would come and go and pass away, they intersect at human beings. And so humans are the only entity in reality that has one foot in eternity and one foot in time, that has body and soul, that has the ability to relate to God and yet is part of you know, coming and going of creation. So we're at this unique overlap point and so sometimes we see the animal come out in ourselves and sometimes we see the angel um, but it explains how we kind of exist at the interface of two different kinds of reality. And so the, the text that we all can't read there is the text that Stuart read to us before from Psalm 8, uh, that when you see the stars, when you see those cosmos pictures that we do, what are human beings that God should even care about them at all? You know, we could be viewed as just the bacteria on another soggy tennis ball, but that's not how God sees us. That's not how God prizes us. He made us a little lower than God or a little, little lower than God's is another way to translate that line and crowned us with glory and honour. And then the New Testament writers will say, hey, the best um, location for that phrase is really to talk about Jesus himself, you know, the true son of man, really crowned with glory and honour. But the psalmist really meant all humans have that dignity. Now, the mere fact that God sends his son to be incarnated, to adopt flesh and come into the world, means that the whole ancient idea that anything fleshly and physical was bad and anything spiritual was good and that our whole goal is to get away from the physical and ditch it and have a purely spiritual existence and, and condemn all this physical stuff. Uh, that's certainly Platonic philosophy. That's how Plato thought and... Uh, his followers and the Gnostics, it's not actually biblical faith. The whole theology of the Bible is not to hate creation and be embarrassed about it, but it is actually to look forward to its redemption. Right? So sometimes we need a bit more Paul in our theology and a bit less Plato. We need to realise um, the body is not an embarrassment for Christian theology and the physical world is not something that, you know, the sooner that can be burned up and roasted and done away with, the, the, the better... Uh, the ultimate biblical vision is actually for the re redemption, the renewal of the world, and the renewal of the body. You know, Paul's not like look, looking for a, an eternal existence as a disembodied spirit. He's actually looking forward to the redemption of the body, the physical resurrection. And so creation wasn't a mistake on God's part. There were ancient people who believed so strongly that the physical world was bad that they actually thought a different God had created it as a kind of a pseudo-false creation. And the early church had to battle that belief for probably 200 years before they really won the victory over it. That was a serious contention, even for you know, what Christian belief was going to become, that actually there was a bad creator God who produced all this rubbish physical stuff, and then there's the true high God who um, just temporarily got put in the shade by that false creator God. No, the Bible keeps those united and says 
physical creation is so good that I'm sending my son to adopt flesh. And so this was something that made the Christian message really hard to sell in the, early, in the world of the early church, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So philosophical thinkers in that world were like, well, that's all backwards. The whole thing we're trying to do to be spiritual people is to escape the world. Why would God sully his son by sending him into it? You know, this is the world where people have to eat and have to go to the toilet and wash their hands and wash the dust off their feet, you know, as if God would stain himself with that stuff, as if God would make himself a baby if they had to have its bottom wiped, as if God would do that. And so they had a lot of trouble accepting the Christian message. This was one of the hard sells. So it's not just us who have unpopular aspects of the Christian message that we have to sort of be a little bit courageous about and retain. Early church was the same. So we're not meant to be embarrassed by this creation. We're actually meant to kind of really live it. You know, God has endorsed it both by making it and then by incarnating his son in the middle of it. Uh, so that he might, you know, so Jesus comes to earth and has low blood sugar moments where he really needs to eat something and gets all trembly and weak or gets tired at the end of a day and just really needs a rest. Um, seems very ungodlike, and many of the ancient people couldn't imagine that that could be true. Uh, but this is what God has done, bringing heaven to earth. But I want to personalise this. This is not meant to remain in the world of theory. And this comes back to my point that what we believe really has the power to influence how we see our world and how we live in it and how we see ourselves. And so Psalm 139, you know, talks about the creation of our inward parts and the mysterious process of growing in our mother's wombs and our, our bones being kind of produced and knit together from that kind of jelly-like start that we have. And that God knew even those stages when we were in formation, in the womb, like in the image. And so that needs to affect how we see ourselves. And so I'm not a Lutheran and never really have been, but Martin Luther's one of those guys who uh, had some great stuff at different times. So I'm bringing a bit of Lutheranism in today. Uh, he had a catechism or a, a Christian training program, is what they would call it now, for uh, people who, to just get the groundings of their faith. And so the first article in the Apostles' Creed that he was working with says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so Luther's going to expound this a bit for the average punter. And so he says, what does that mean? And here's his explanation. I believe that God has made me and all creatures. He's given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So do you see how when Luther says, what are we meant to think when we say in the creed, as other churches would sometimes, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. We shouldn't just be thinking of the creation of the cosmos, 
And we shouldn't even just be thinking of the creation of humanity as a category or an original couple somewhere. We actually should realise that our doctrine in the end has to come home and roost in our lives. So when you wake up in the morning and look at the mirror and you see yourself with morning face and you're tempted to despise what you see there, you know, your eyes are all out of place and everything like in a far side cartoon, um, you actually are meant to be loving that creature that you see there because it's no accident, it's no freak of genetic combination that you happen to be there staring at yourself. Your life was intentional. Not just Adam and Eve's life, or not just a generic human category. You were meant to be here. I was meant to be here. With all our faults and flaws and the things that we don't like about ourselves, we're intentional, not accidental. And this is what people like Carl Sagan couldn't get their heads around, uh, that there could be purpose in the world. That's fundamental to the Christian confession, is that the purpose of God underlies the world. But it's not just out in abstract categories, it's us, right? Us personally that are intended to be here. And so then we need to live like we're intended to be here. We need to not um, kind of pussyfoot around apologising for living, right? You know, how we can be sometimes when we're intimidated or kind of our self-worth is driven down and we feel like we've got to apologise for being on the planet. No apology necessary. God wanted you here, God wanted me here, so no apologising. Also no high and mighty, you know, I'm the best person on the planet. You know, you know better than anyone else. So if you're, uh, you know, about to sort of do that over something you've achieved, uh, this theology also bring, keeps us down to size as well as bringing us up to the value of others. You know, it says, you know, don't get tickets on yourself either. <laughs> you know, you're just another creation of God. So is that person with one leg. So is that person who's had a brain injury. So is that person who's suffering chronic illness and we never see because they're at home. All equally intended to be here by God. And so this has the power to impact how we see ourselves. And it was the wisdom of Luther once again to see it straight, to see it clearly and to put it simply for us. So we're confessing about cosmoses and we're confessing about babies' feet. So against the backdrop of the antenna galaxies, which are two merging galaxies, I forget how far away, I never sort of grasped the distance, but this is a, a great photo. Um, so it's the antenna galaxies. You can just look it up on the NASA website. This is the middle of the formation, and you can actually tell that two galaxies have come into contact and they're stripping stars off one another. And so there's a great stream of stars in between uh, the two galaxies, and in fact, lots and lots are forming in the stress and turmoil that's going on, like, like eddies in a current. You know, there's all these new stars forming. And if you zoom out to the larger picture, which I haven't got here, you can see a spray of stars just reaching off for light years in two directions as this collision's happening. And this collision takes hundreds of millions of years. This is the scale on which this operates. Because like a baby's foot, some of the things that God does, God does gradually. Some of the things that he creates, he creates via growth. And so uh, one female scholar said, why in our collections of essays on creation do we always have that swirling galaxy on the cover? So I've sort of made myself a bit guilty of that. And never a baby's foot. She's kind of saying the same thing that Luther is saying. Uh, in our appreciation of the big scale of creation... Let's not forget that even when a baby is formed in the womb, that's God's creation too. 
And we have the Bible's endorsement for that. We have that passage in Job talking about how I can recognise the slave, says Job, as a creation like me. Psalm 8, and then when we went to James, the whole reason we shouldn't be slagging people off is that God has made them in his image as well as making us. So our theology needs to be big scale, huge scale. Like I just think it does us no harm to expand our minds and realise the scale of the universe or expand our minds in other domains of knowledge, but also to keep it personal and realise that we've got to be walking around with a theology of personal creation and therefore let that affect how we see ourselves and accept ourselves, but also how we accept other people. We don't stratify them into the the good and the bad and the ugly. We regard them as created. And so we have no right to question what God thought was worth doing. And so we recognise the created dignity in others. So we still need a theology of salvation as well, right? We need a theology that explains how created things can be broken and then how God is able to fix them. But this creation part of our theology is an important starting point in our biblical thinking as well. So let me pray, and then uh, the music team will be coming up as I do that. Lord, we really need a Christian view of the world. We need uh, a theological lens. So Lord, give us eyes to see what's true. Give us patience to learn more where we don't know. There's much that we don't know. Sometimes we feel that we blunder around in the dark. But Lord, by your Spirit, please enlighten us. Teach us new things. Help us not to be afraid of learning new things. And lead us into ever greater light through your Word and through your Spirit and through observing our world with true eyes. And make us people who let other people feel the dignity of their own creation. May people around us realise that their life is meant to be because of the way that we treat them and the way that we speak to them. So be... Um, make agents, agents of change out of us, we pray. Amen.